future to be dangerous. Thirty spokes are made one by holes in a hub, by vacancies joining them for a wheel's use. The use of clay in molding pitchers comes from the hollow of its absence. Doors, windows in a house are used for their emptiness. Thus, we are helped by what is not to use what is. Electric circuitry is orientalizing the West. The contained, the distinct, the separate, our Western legacy, are being replaced by the flowing, the unified, the fused. We are being taken on an inner trip into our own inner beings, which involve us in depth in things that had formerly been merely superficial, visual, external, and detached from our own beings. The West shall shake the East awake while you have the night for the morn. All right. Hello, Andrew. Um, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I'm super excited to talk to you. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So today we're going to be talking about, uh, amongst other things, the ideas of Marshall McLuhan, um, media ecology, and all the various ways that our new electronic environment is molding and shaping us. Uh, for people who don't know, um, Marshall McLuhan was a sort of intellectual giant of the 1960s whose foundational text, The Medium is the Message, uh, first purported the idea that the medium, the technology itself that we're interacting with, shapes us on a far more fundamental level than the content, the things that we watch on the TV, is less important than the act of watching TV. And... McLuhan was somebody who kind of fell into obscurity, and I'm not 100% sure why, but I think it's a tragedy because his ideas, in my opinion, are some of the most important of the 20th century, and he offered tools that really can empower us to face the challenges that humanity is facing in existential ways. But before we get into all that, uh, Andrew, if you could just tell us a little bit about who you are and how you got involved in this work and also who Marshall McLuhan was to you personally. Sure, I'm happy to. Um, well, I'm Andrew McLuhan. My my father was Eric McLuhan, who was uh, Marshall McLuhan's eldest son, uh, the oldest of, of six kids. Um, and my dad uh, worked with Marshall from about the mid sixties on, uh, to when Marshall died in the end of 1980. Um, and then my dad kind of just kept on doing his own thing for the <laughs> decades following until he died, uh, a few years ago now, gosh, what is it? Five years ago, which is kind of crazy. Mm. Um, yeah, he died kind of suddenly while uh, we were traveling in Colombia together. He uh, he gave this talk called Media Ecology in the 21st Century, and uh, it was remarkable. It's it's online on the McLuhan Institute's YouTube page. Um, and he died uh, in our hotel room the next morning, which was kind of wild, wow. as you can imagine. Um, I'd been... Uh, 
I'd been I was pretty deep into the McLuhan thing at that point. <laughs> um, I, I wasn't so much interested in it when I was when I was younger. Uh, as we mentioned a little earlier, I was into punk rock and poetry and uh, you know just working and living and looking for love and all all that stuff. Um, uh, I tried to get into the McLuhan work when I was younger in my teens and in my 20s and you know it just didn't do anything for me it's really difficult stuff to get into it's very challenging and uh, I just wasn't at a point in my life where uh, understanding came easy and I wasn't particularly interested in putting a lot of work into it uh, I wanted to find my own way so uh, I moved on but I don't know what it was but somehow in my 30s um, it made sense for the first time uh, something clicked and uh, you know a little a little understanding uh, can be a kind of addictive thing it just ignited something within me um, and I, I started getting more and more involved and in doing some work with my dad and uh, you know never on the same level that he worked with his father, uh, Marshall and Eric were really, um, a rare, a rare kind of father and son tag team. Uh, you mentioned that Marshall was, was kind of a big deal in the sixties and then fell out of favor. Uh, and that's, that's true, but, um, he didn't stop working and he and my father did a lot of work together, including what became known as uh, laws and media. Uh, published as Laws of Media, The New Science, which my dad finished up after Marshall died, uh, and it was published in 1988. And um, they had just this incredible, very intimate working relationship, which, uh, yeah, you don't see many examples of that. It's it's rare enough to see a, a generational business of any kind, but uh, an intellectual one, I think, is even more rare. Well, anyway, I don't, I don't presume to, to have that level of involvement. Um, it, it took me, it took me a long time to find my way in this. And that's, you know, when you're younger, uh, you assume a lot of things, you know, you, you think that you have to be one thing or another. Uh, and maybe that's what turned me off the whole business in the first place. But I, I discovered that I'm not them. I have my own kind of take on things. And not only that, but that's what, that's what people want you to be you as trite as it kind of sounds. Mm -hmm. uh, there's only one you. And I think this work media studies had been kind of locked away in academia for a long time. And uh, it wasn't, it wasn't doing nearly what it could be doing in the world kind of bottled up there. Uh, a lot of what Marshall did was trying to bring it out of academia and into the world. And he got a lot of flack for that because, uh, you know, in the 40s, 50s, 60s, uh, academia was an even more conservative place than it is today. And uh, you were supposed to kind of stay in your lane. You know, interdisciplinary studies wasn't a thing, but media studies is interdisciplinary studies. And um, you certainly didn't uh, go on television and parade around, be public and things like that. It was unseemly. Uh, 
so that that didn't work very much in Marshall's favor. But, um, you know, and I I, I could go on, but right. Uh, well, it's <laughs> yeah. I mean, also, I mean, his his style, his his, his just his pro style. He he really was a renegade in the academic world, and yeah. I I I have always seen him as more of an artist and a poet, or uh, just a literary figure than uh-huh. a you know traditional academic hard nosed science type. Well, um, good. Uh, you know, Marshall McLuhan was a literary uh, literature professor uh, for his entire career. Uh, media studies was his side hustle. Um, but he definitely, um, he also comes from a tradition of performers. Uh, his mother was what's, what was known as an elocutionist, which is somebody who would, um, go around in church halls and banquet halls and whatever theaters and perform monologues and dramatic readings and things. So Marshall came by his flair for the dramatic, honestly, he also studied it. He studied poetry, literature, recitation, oration, rhetoric, all these things. Um, and he, he realized that um, if he wanted to capture the public imagination, he had to do things differently. Uh, so that was reflected in his writing style, um, which has been called the mosaic style. And also in his in his delivery and his public uh, persona, with all those things were very much crafted for a particular effect, and he achieved that effect, which was to to ruffle feathers. He said, "You know, I don't see any point in saying anything but provocative things." Hmm. Um, and the the distinction there is he he didn't say anything just to be provocative, but. Um, he was trying to to wake people up to uh, the effects of technologies on us, which um, are very, very subtle things that we don't tend to notice, like the air around us or the water the fish swims in and doesn't realize it's swimming in until it gets pulled out. Right. So he was he was pulling, trying to pull the fish out of the water, I guess. Right. Well, you did mention that you have your own unique um, observations and um, probes distinct from your father and your grandfather. Um, but before we get into your take, I guess like it'd probably be good to just kind of lay the foundation of uh, McLuhan's basic ideas sure. um, so we can have a language for this stuff. So first of all, what was media for Marshall McLuhan? And how would we use that definition to understand things like media ecology or the medium is the message? That's, that's a really great question and um, one which people I don't think ask often enough, you know, one of the, one of, one of Marshall McLuhan's major contributions, I think, was in enlarging this category of what a medium is or what a medium means, mm-hmm. um, away from just a tool or a technology and, uh, more toward, um, environment. And, uh, he said, uh, you know, if somebody said environment, that's a better of saying that the medium is the message. The environment is the message. Hmm. Um, because, uh, oh, there's so many ways, so many ways to get into it, but, but environment. So the environment is the message is a good way of saying it because, um, you know, it, it matters a little bit 
well, much less what exactly we talk about on Zoom or on the telephone, but how these instruments change us personally and how they change us socially. Um, they do so regardless, generally, of our individual conversations or the individual content. It's, it's by the aggregate. It's like, you know, during COVID, work and life were rearranged uh, because of Zoom. Uh, and a certain society was made possible because we had Zoom that wouldn't have been without it. Right. You know, imagine, imagine what 2020, 21, 22 would have looked like without uh, streaming services. Right. Or imagine what the 1960s and 70s would look like without uh, the automobile and superhighways creating the suburbs, uh, 50s, 60s. Uh, and so it doesn't it doesn't matter so much if you're if you're driving to work at the factory or driving to work at the office. It's being able to live far away from work, um, you know, not having to live walking distance. Mm -hmm. which changed the nature of cities and our relationship to neighborhoods uh, forever. So um, it was really an enlargement of this category uh, beyond simply communications. Uh, because up until that point, media studies was communication studies. And I think Marshall's unique contribution was... Uh, making media studies, not just telephones and televisions, um, but clothing, you know, for example, or air conditioners or watches or, you know, forks and knives. Uh, these technologies, these ex which are extensions of ourselves in one way or another, um, these things make a certain world possible and another world impossible. And they change us and the world around us uh, irrevocably in many cases. Right. And speaking of extensions, uh -huh. I think it's interesting because there's examples you can think of to where it's clear that a technology or a media is an enhancement. You know, like the bow and arrow is a good example. I, I cannot hit that guy from over here. I need... A technology to allow that to happen, which is an extension of my arm. Yeah. But that is the technology that doesn't seem to um, amputate our cognitive abilities. If anything, it enhances it. You need, you need visual acuity and you need hand-eye coordination and all of these things. Um, and, and, and you have cognitive abilities that are honed through that extension as opposed to a drone, for example. Um, or I think like a great example would be a calculator. You know, I think I heard once that like uh, in ancient Greece, like your average civilian could perform algorithmic calculations in their head that, you know, modern math professors can't do because sure. we've outsourced that ability to the calculator and essentially, uh -huh. you know, amputated that part of our cognitive process. Yeah. And um, from what I understand and tell me if I'm wrong, the idea of media ecology is a fine tuning of an awareness of how we interact with, the, with these medias and what they're doing to us on a cognitive level. And I guess you can extrapolate to an evolutionary level. Um, you know, it almost feels like, uh, I guess an analogy with something like, you know, calculators or Google maps would be like, there's an apple in a tree 
and we need to get it out. So we chop off our left arm to use it as a stick <laughs> to get it out. And now we're, you know, we're permanently altered in a way that we lost something. Hmm. Does that check out at all? Well, um, media ecology, it depends who you ask. Because I think there are, there are different schools of media ecology. But um, my father said that ecology, um, you know, there are no spectators in ecology. Ecology entails or presumes action, right? Uh, if, you think, if you think of it in terms of uh, natural ecology, ecology of the environment around us, you know, it's, um, sure there's some theory to it, but it's, it's activity, right? It's like when you, when you know that, uh, there's something wrong in the environment, uh, or you, you find some pollution or some, you know, place of stress, um, ecology is acting, it's dealing with it. Uh, ecology is not a spectator sport. As, as my father said in media ecology in the 21st century. Um, media ecology, Marshall uh, actually brings it up in, in the 60s in understanding media. He doesn't call it media ecology at that point. That came a couple years later. But the idea was there. And he thought about programming the environment um, the way you would set a thermostat in the house. So a thermostat is how you regulate the, the temperature of your house, you know, your, your ecology of your you know, house. If it's too hot, you turn down the thermostat. If it's too cold, you turn it up. Well, uh, applying, applying this to technology, um, you might think about, for example, uh, the epidemic of anxiety mm. that we seem to be under. People are anxious uh, as they've never been before. And for Marshall, I guess for McLuhan studies, if not for media studies, this is uh, largely um, a media problem. It's something new. Um, and uh, we can probably guess what the, the major root cause is. I suppose it's a coincidence that, uh, you know, the average U.S., youth between ages eight and 18 now spends seven and a half hours on screens per day engaged in what they call non-educational content. Right. You know, so that doesn't even count school-based stuff. Uh, you compare that with the rising levels of anxiety and it's, you know, they like to say that correlation doesn't, you know, necessarily mean causation, but it's a, it's a heck of a coincidence if, if it's not related. So media ecology would be, well, okay, so how do we adjust the environment? How do we adjust the cause to, you know, address the symptom? Uh, and, you know, there might be ways to do that. They would not be easy, but probably ways to do it. Uh, so media ecology takes an environmental approach. And it says what's going on in the environment and how can we, um, you know, tailor this environment for everybody's well-being. Right. Of course, this brings up 
question of, you know, what does that mean? What is, what is well-being? We have to agree on, on that first. So that means looking at people's values and culture and where we want to be and where we don't want to be. Right. Um, I've heard you use this concept, uh, figuring ground. Uh-huh. Um, is this part of what you mean by um, yeah. studying the environment? And could you go into yep. that a little bit? Yeah. Um, figure and ground were actually terms uh, introduced uh, by this guy, Edgar Rubin, who was a Gestalt psychologist uh, around a century ago in the early 1900s. And uh, he used the terms to describe the structure of visible phenomena. So, for example, if you're looking at a painting, say it's a portrait, and you have a figure, a person, uh, and then around them you have a background or a ground. Um, now, Marshall took these terms and he applied them more broadly to talk about technology. So you have uh, technology or a figure, and then you have a ground, uh, a background or an environment, which comprises everything that is necessary for that thing to function, but also all of the effects flowing from it. So in terms of the painting, if you're, if you're thinking about the painting, it's not just the, uh, the, the image, but it's the paints and it's the, the frame and the board, uh, but it's also the artist and it's also the gallery and the gallery owner and the viewing public and the buying public. You know, it's everything that's entailed in this operation. Um, it's, you know, the commercial aspect of art as distinct from the aesthetic or other aspects of art. Um, so another, another word for ground might be environment and it, it could also be medium. And it's this ground or this environment, which is the message, because uh, as much as narratives uh, are interesting and important and part of what it means to be human, they're not typically what shapes, shapes us and our society so much as uh, the environment uh, surrounding them. So figuring ground is a, is a handy little device for getting at um, the effects of things. And, uh, I teach a class, I do it for kids as young as five and six, uh, grade five and six. Oh, wow. Um, and they're actually the most fun because, so what I do is, uh, you know, I explain what I just did and then, um, I'll take a, as big a surface as I have a whiteboard, a blackboard, whiteboard, whatever. And in the middle I'll put smartphone and then I'll say to them, you know, what, what do you need in order for the smartphone to exist? Okay. And this is great with kids because they like participating and shouting things out and everybody can think of things, you know, you need electricity, uh, not only that, but you need batteries. Oh, and if you're going to have batteries, you need, you know, rare earth minerals. So you need mining mm -hmm. plus you need manufacturing, um, and that stuff's expensive. They like to offload the labor. So then, you know, we need to outsource that. So we talk about that. Um, oh, you've got to have internet. So you need to have servers and you need to have wireless and you need to have ISPs and suppliers. Um, and oh, well, you need to have money because uh, you've got to buy these things. 
uh, you know, and all the things that that entails and education, research and development, the board starts to get filled up with things um, and you place things on the board so that you can see the relationships between them, right? How intimately they're connected and what happens if you pull one piece out of it. So we'll spend like 15, 20 minutes um, usually having fun writing all this stuff down. And keep in mind, we're talking to like, you know, 10, 11, 12 year olds. And so after we get a big full board, I stop and I erase the smartphone from the middle. And I say, now imagine tomorrow morning you wake up and your smartphone, your iPhone doesn't work and it's never going to work again. And I pause for a second because it goes dead quiet. <laughs> because when they start to think about this, because it's, it's almost beyond their comprehension, right? Every, every aspect of their day from when they wake up to when they go to sleep, and even sometimes in between, um, involves this thing. Everything they do, you know, it wakes them up in the morning. They fall asleep from the gentle glow of the screen. You know, they look up everything. They communicate with friends that it interfaces between them and the world. Um, they turn to it for all these things. And how would they function without it? They just can't think about it, right? So you look at what happens on this board if you pull out the smartphone too. All of these, uh, this, this complex environment built to support this thing collapses without that thing. And that thing collapses without the environment as well. You know, you affect one part of it, you affect the whole thing. Um, but the, the, the audible gasp that you hear from these kids and the look on their face as they try to figure out what their world would... Because even on the school you heard, they're not playing with their friends, they're, you know, snapping or whatever. Um, and the idea of not having it, you know, if your phone breaks... If you run out of charge and your battery is dead, these are anxious moments, you know, uh, and that gets at some of the other effects, the more subtle effects. Uh, one way of, of discovering those subtle effects is to remove the figure from the ground and see what happens, mm -hmm. uh, because the effects of technologies come uh, on these two major levels, the personal and the social. There's the effect on you personally, like physically, uh, your senses, your mind, your body, uh, and then socially, uh, your family, your friend group, your culture. Uh, two different order of effect, two different levels of, of values as well, uh, because, you know, what's, what's good for me isn't necessarily, or what I think is best for me isn't necessarily best for society and vice versa. So there's, there's a tension there as well. Um, so you see a figure in ground, while it sounds really simple, is actually a really, um, a really complicated and really useful, uh, little device for, for getting at the effects of technologies, uh, minus their content. So looking at, at the actual medium. All media are extensions of some human faculty, psychic or physical. The wheel is an extension of the foot. 
The book is an extension of the eye. Clothing is an extension of the skin. Electric circuitry, the medium of our time, is an extension of the central nervous system. The media, by altering the environment, evoke in us unique ratios of sense perceptions. The extension of any one sense alters the way we think and act, the way we perceive the world, and the way we perceive our own bodies. When these ratios change, men change. She was indignant when I suggested the use of an aphrodisiac. Why? Naturally, she considers TV a waste of time. Come and get it! So you run the McLuhan Institute, and part of that project is archival, you know, having all of McLuhan's yeah. work preserved and accessible to the public. Um, but you also do seem to be an advocate of um, education and conversations and research revolving around this concept of media ecology. And I'm just wondering what, what your vision is, I suppose, for how we can integrate this study into our daily lives on a practical individual level, but then also on a cultural level, maybe, you know, with new bureaucracies and institutions. <laughs> that's, that's a very big question a, yeah. <laughs> or a series of them. Um, yeah, the, the McLuhan Institute, uh, I founded in, in 2017, just before my dad died, um, on, on four basic pillars, I suppose, research, education, archive, and exploration. Um, it occurred to me that my grandfather and my father had, had begun and continued a tradition, a kind of unique brand of media studies, which was worth preserving. And not, not just preserving, but worth um, continuing. Uh, because honestly, I, I'm not so much interested in a museum for, uh, you know, a museum's sake, like statues, memorials. Right. Like, sure, it's important to know our history and, you know, that's great. But um, what what we need more is uh, to work on things and try and improve our world today. And for sure, history is an avenue toward that. Um, so that's important. And, and what I have here at the Institute is uh, probably the third largest collection of McLuhan things uh, behind the National Archives of Canada, the Fisher Library at University of Toronto. Um, and definitely that's worth preserving. Uh, and I, I do my best to, to make these things accessible. Uh, I've got a long, a long way to go with that, but it's early days. Um, so, so the archival part is important. Um, I'm, I try to come at everything from a very practical standpoint. So my, my priority is um, what is useful from these things in the past to help us today. And that's actually um, the interesting thing about uh, McLuhan work is that so much of it is so useful today. Uh, and people are often, uh, a lot of times when people discover McLuhan work, they're, they're surprised at how, um, how it seems so fresh, how it could have been written today, a lot of the things he was talking about. Um, and that's, 
that's not accidental. It's, it's by design. It's, it's a, uh, it's a function of, of the fact that he was writing about the medium rather than the message. That is, he was interested in the nature and the effects of technologies uh, rather than specific technologies, the category of technologies. Mm -hmm. um, and it's interesting. So a book like Understanding Media, for example, is divided into two parts, part one and part two. And Part one is seven chapters, and it's essentially seven different ways of looking at the nature and effect of technologies. And then part two is 26 chapters, which essentially takes the tools, techniques from part one and applies them to specific technologies like print and radio and television and clothing and housing, etc. Um, so this is, this is my interest and in what I try to do uh, with the McLuhan's Institute is um, uncover and surface these practical things like figure and ground and the medium is the message that can help us um, not only understand the world around us, but ideally uh, reclaim the agency, which, which we tend to just give away. Uh, because I, I, I do believe we have a lot more agency than we think we do. Uh, you know, human ingenuity uh, creates some, some remarkable things, but uh, we tend to be very short-sighted about, about them. You know, it's often, we have this term unintended consequences, you know, but uh, while they might be unintended, I, I don't think they're unavoidable. And I think that's an important part. Um, what, what we can do about it is, is, again, I think two parts. So if you think, if you agree with the premise that, you know, the effects of technologies happen on these two major levels, the personal and the social, I think we can, we can act on those two levels as well, the personal and social. Um, we have a lot of control over our lives, even if, you know, they're difficult decisions. Um, I wrote this piece a year ago called Maelstrom Escape Strategies. And uh, that the whole point of that was to try and help us to look at our lives and see where we might have some place for agency, um, how we can maybe work to, to counteract some of the effects of things. And while it's, it's difficult and unfeasible to, to do a lot of things, um, it's not impossible. So there's that. But then socially, uh, socially is a whole other matter, uh, a very difficult matter. But again, I don't think it's impossible. Um, we've, we've done it before, actually down in the States there, um, there was actually a time when there was no FDA, you know, Food and Drug Administration. Uh, and what happened was people were getting sick from, from tainted uh, tinned meat um, and because there was no official regulatory body and people were getting sick and dying and demanded change. And uh, the U.S. government implemented something called the Food and Drug Safety Act which uh, said that food and drugs, you know, pharmaceuticals, uh, food and beverages, had to be safe and effective. 
which means, you know, they had to not make you sick. Um, and they had to do what they said they were going to do. So no snake oil and no more dying from tainted meat or much reduced. And so companies had to go through uh, rigorous testing processes. And if you think about it, no drug company would have been thrilled at that prospect, right? Who, who's going to volunteer to delay their product coming to market, have to go through various uh, scaling complex um, tests, human trials, animal trials, all the rest of it, before they can release the thing. Uh, nobody's going to sign up for that, obviously. And you can imagine that the big drunk companies and food and beverages said, well, you know, we can regulate ourselves and this is going to cost us millions of dollars. Um, but look at those companies today. And none of them are hurting for money, right? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a fact. So, so the argument falls very flat. Really, it's in the public. It's in the public good, and it's in the business good as well to make sure that you don't kill your consumers. Um, now, technologies might not be, that's a little drastic to say killing us. It's not quite the same, but it's fundamentally changing who we are. Think about these kids who can't imagine their lives without smartphones. And, well, I don't know how old you are, but I was alive before the smartphone. And, uh, you know, we, not that the world was perfect, but we managed to do the things we needed to do. Uh, but it was a much different world, much different world. Uh, it, and we were much different people. And so it's not a question of these things are, are killing us, but it's, a, the, you know, it's change and uh, some of it is positive and desirable, and some of it is less positive or desirable. And I think the promise of media studies and maybe media ecology is that we can be a lot more intentional about the effects that these things have than we currently are being. Right, right. Um, no, yeah, I think, it's in, I, th I think more people are catching on to that. And I think that's why McLuhan, McLuhan's scholarship and McLuhan's ideas are coming back into favor a bit. It feels like there's a bit of resurgence uh -huh. because I think people are starting to recognize um, that basic concept of the environment and the medium being what alters us. You know, it's uh, yeah. people aren't asking questions about what TikToks are good for your mental health and which ones are bad. It's <laughs> like, no, like we're pretty aware that, you know, doom scrolling for an hour straight has an effect on our attention span and has an effect on our consciousness. Right. Um, and so, it doesn't, it doesn't matter if it's quote unquote educational content. Right. You know, doom scrolling is doom scrolling. This was something that, uh, in the early days of the pandemic, when, uh, I've got two young kids and their schooling went online and I was like, seriously, you want my kids to sit in front of a screen for six hours a day? Like you're kidding. And I looked it up. Uh, and the government of Canada at that time, uh, I haven't looked it up lately, recommended no more than an hour of educational content a day, screen time. Mm. And it even qualified it as educational, showing that they really don't understand the effects of technologies. Uh, because like you said, you know, doom scrolling is doom scrolling. Uh, but, you know, there's that. And then 
the school is telling my kids that they should be in front of the screen for six hours a day. It's like there's a little bit of a of a disconnect here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I want to change gears a little bit because I was oh. thinking about this idea of like what a medium is again, and you know, so so the concept like you know it doesn't matter what you're reading. The act of reading is what's having the effect on your neuroplasticity and on a larger, you know, ecological level, the culture and the economy. Yeah. Um, but there's a quote that I read, um, I believe it was from your father, that I thought was really interesting, that brings up questions about modifying existing mediums to make them, make their effects something completely new. Yeah. Um, he said, beginning with the telegraph, the inner world of the senses and the nervous system was suddenly transplanted into the external environments. Under these conditions, the new job of the poet was to provide counter environments for the reader to wear, like corrective eyeglasses, in order to adjust and restore the reader's sensibilities. A new poetic calls for new tools, tools that will enable a discerning reader to analyze the structure of situations. And he later says, the artist studies the distortion of sensory life produced by new environment programming and tends to create artistic situations that correct the sensory bias and derangement brought about by new form. Yeah. So I, uh, I had this idea. <laughs> I, was, I was watching um, a Tarkovsky film, Nostalgia, the other day, and I watched it right before I saw the movie Oppenheimer. And I was thinking, so in Oppenheimer, if you haven't seen it, it's like three and a half hours long, but everyone says it feels really short. And my feeling is that it's because every scene is like 10 seconds long. It's just cut, 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 cut. And it almost uh -huh. operates like scrolling through TikTok or something. It's just very fast paced, high stimuli. And on the other hand, in the film Nostalgia by Tarkovsky, there's just a 10 minute scene. It could have been more or less time felt really weird watching it where nothing's happening really. It's just a guy holding a candle, walking back and forth for about 10 minutes. And it caused a clearly perceptible change in my experience of time, sitting and watching this 10 minute long sort of surrealist thing happen before me to the degree that like, I wonder, you know, if reshaping the form in the way that like McLuhan fractured his text can alter the effects of perception uh -huh. while operating within the same quote unquote media. Um, For sure. Um, perception and, and cognition. Um, yeah, there's a couple things there. Uh, Marshall leaned heavily on arts and the artist um, for, for at least one major reason. Um, uh, and it's not because artists tend to be any smarter than the rest of us or even know what they're doing, but that technologies, uh, tend to shape us on the, the very fundamental level, sensory and cognitive level. So before before you even get to comprehension and cognition, um, you know, technologies, uh, everything we know, all our information comes through the senses, sensory information, 
then we, we do something with it. But um, our senses are, are shaped, uh, well, more or less continually during our lives, but uh, really in the, in the first couple of years of our lives, our senses are shaped in, in certain pathways. And, um, and they tend to, they, they continually evolve a bit, but they, they dull over time. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm in my forties now and I have to wear reading glasses to see, uh, anything within an arm distance, you know, very clearly, um, your sense of hearing, sense of taste, these things tend to dull over time. Mm. Um, the artist is different than the rest of us because whereas our senses tend to dull, they work really hard to keep their senses sharp. And they're constantly out there trying to experience things in new ways and trying to find novel ways of relating that experience to us. Um, this is where they're very useful because they literally sense things before we do. And if a lot of new art tends to look weird or uh, unesthetically pleasing, it's simply because we have a particular sensory balance or bias and it's clashing with that. Mm -hmm. But the artist is just uh, really telling us what's happening, uh, which, you know, we're going to feel a little bit later. They kind of ad have advanced news. Um, Marshall also paid very close attention to language uh, because language is a very vital and living thing. Um, and it's also where a lot of change registers first because, you know, uh, we have experience and we want to relate them. And we, we change our language uh, in order to do so. And so you'll notice uh, slang and, and language and the way we speak about things and phrases that we use uh, alter. Uh, and it's, you know, not just for the sake of being clever. It's grappling with changing circumstances, which is interesting. Um, so art, art and the artist uh, are very useful in that sense. And Marshall didn't think very much about, you know, the aesthetics of art for their sake. He was more interested in the utility and, and what it can be used for in terms of helping us understand technological and cultural change. Mm -hmm. um, and a course correction for its effects, even. Right. Now, that's, that's a whole other stream of things that I haven't wrapped my head around yet. <laughs> because, man, honestly, I don't know. I don't know how Marshall did it but he managed to read so much uh, into these things. And, you know, it's been, it's been borne out in time, but um, how he did it is a very, very good question that I'm, you know, I'm trying to answer, but, you know, I've only been in this, uh, this work for about a decade now, and that might sound like a lot, but I feel like I'm just making progress. <laughs> it's a, uh, it's a very 
complex and strange and weird area that I expect I'll, I'll spend the rest of my life trying to, to come to terms with and help other people come to terms with. But, um, but I am encouraged, uh, because, you know, Marshall McLuhan actually said the medium is the message first in 1958, uh, six years before he wrote Understanding Media. And and when he said it in his time, people were like, what are you talking about? That's crazy or stupid. You know, the message is the message. Right. What do you mean the medium is the message? Um, but, you know, if, if we have this conversation today uh, that, you know, the medium is the environment and it's, it's the environment that is the, the shaping force um, people will generally say, well, yeah, it's obvious, right? And that's, that's a huge shift, a very big shift in the span of, you know, 50 or so, 80 years. Um, that gives me some amount of hope. And that's why, uh, you know, I lean pretty heavily on the medium as the message because it's, um, it's a pithy thing, you know, uh, it's a great little poetic distillation of a concept into five words. Uh, but I believe uh, if it's, I really think if, if the world uh, understood the medium is the message, uh, I think there's kind of a critical mass. It's like where we are with the environment, you know, there's a very uh, public acceptance, you know, say what you want about climate change, uh, you know, question the science or whatever, but people understand the relationship between our well-being and our environmental well-being, you know. Um, you understand that if you've got a factory pumping chemicals into your lake that you're getting your water from, you're probably not going to do too well, Right. If people understood the relationship between the technological effluence we're releasing into our social and cultural environment and, you know, sensory cognitive environment, personally and socially, um, if people understood that it's, it's no different than having a factory dumping chemicals into your lake that you're drinking from, um, we would demand better. You know, we don't let companies get away with dumping chemicals and we shouldn't let companies get away with, um, you know, the things that are happening to us as a result of these technologies. And I, I just want to say that uh, I don't think, you know, I know a lot of people in the tech, in various technology industries and by and large, they're people who are coming at it from the best of intentions. Uh, but they don't, they don't understand uh, what they're doing. You know, they see the product, but they don't see the, the effect of the process. And uh, if we're going to make any headway, that, that needs to change. And I really think that if we can get enough people pissed off... <laughs> will demand the kind of change that led to the creation of the FDA. 
Right. Yeah, yeah. You don't seem to be super pessimistic, um, which is I'm not at all, actually. I'm, I'm so optimistic because I believe uh, it's corny. I'm a poet. Maybe <laughs> I'm, I'm inclined toward it, although there's some pretty depressing poets out there. Um, I think you have to be pretty blind to not be hopeful, honestly. There's human ingenuity. Uh, man, it gets us into these messes, but uh, I really think it can get us out of them as well. There's, uh, there's not much we can't accomplish as people if we're willing to work together and, and look things, you know, in the eye, head on. Um, I, I really see, yeah, people do some awful stuff to each other. It's true. Um, but I think there's, there's a lot more choice to it than, than we think. And, you know, I, I do what I can to help, help people out on a, on a one-to-one personal level. And in the work that I do, I'm just trying to elevate, uh, the discourse and make positive change. Um, and, uh, you know, I know that in my work here at the McLuhan Institute, I've come so much further than I, I imagined I would at this point, like five years in. Um, and it hasn't been just because I'm an amazing human being. Uh, it's, it's been because I've met so many people along the way who believe in the same thing and, uh, want to help out. Uh, and so how can you be anything but hopeful? even though the world's a bit of a dumpster fire at the moment. I really think we can turn things around. Yeah. I mean, I think that we need to start attempting to, at the very least. I mean, yeah. things are moving so fast. You know, we, we had, you know, over a century to grapple with the effects of the automobile, for example. Um, the iPhone. Well, this is, this is the thing, um, is that change used to happen very, very slowly mm-hmm. in past centuries ago, you know, uh, now change happens so fast, you know, in a matter of hours, if not a couple of days, uh, technologies can go global. Uh, this presents us with a lot of problems, but it also presents us with opportunities. Um, Marshall liked to quote Bertrand Russell, who said, if they only raise the temperature of the bathwater a degree every hour, we wouldn't know when to scream. You know. So we're we're screaming. <laughs> but that lets us know that there's something wrong and we can adjust it. So that's the opportunity. How do you feel like so McLuhan died in nineteen eighty, I believe. Yeah. Which is insane because he never got to see the internet. Uh-huh. Um, let alone iPhones, let alone the advent of AI. What do you think his reaction to something like AI? What 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 would his um, outlook be? Well, uh, for one thing, he would be completely unsurprised. Hmm. Uh, it's a logical development. Uh, I think. He he might have been he might be a little dismayed that we haven't gotten any smarter about things, you know? Right. It's it's like honestly, we've been 
we've known about this stuff for decades now, and we're still not changing our behavior. And didn't Einstein or somebody else say that that's the definition of insanity? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. Uh, you know, it's it shouldn't be any surprise that we are where we are. Uh, I mean, he was also a very hopeful person too. Uh, he was he was a very devout Catholic Christian for one thing. Um, but I think he also believed in, um, humanity and that will eventually, hopefully, well, I can't, it's hard. I don't want to put words in his mouth, obviously, but, uh, or, you know, put my optimism on, on anybody else. Right. Uh, but I think, um, you know, he said there's there's no inevitability as long as we're willing to contemplate the situation. Really, I don't think there's uh, just about any obstacle, certainly of our making, that we can't overcome if we apply ourselves to it. We just have to have the, the will and the courage um, to do things differently. You said, I explore, I don't explain. Now, isn't that an untenable, indeed inexcusably arrogant position for a teacher to take up when you are a teacher? You should explain it. I explore poetry. I don't, I, I don't think poetry can be explained, but I do, I do think it can be a means of teaching perception. I don't use concepts. I use percepts. I seek to perceive, not to conceive what's in front of me. And perception is exploration. And you do not know from one moment to the next what you're going to discover, discover, discover.